Hi, welcome to Nutra Champion, a podcast series where we speak with experts specializing in nutrition research, including scientists, doctors, and policy makers. Here, we will find out more about their research journey, their career, and even some personal life lessons. I'm Ting Ming, the editor of Nutra Ingredients Asia and your host for this podcast. You can listen to our past episodes on Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Apple Podcasts. In this episode, I'm very honoured to be joined by Professor Jenny Brand-Miller, the Professor of Human Nutrition at the School of Life and Environmental Sciences in the University of Sydney. Prof Jenny is internationally recognised for her groundbreaking work surrounding glycemic index, short form GI, which is also the measurement of the body's absorption of carbohydrates. A passionate advocate of low GI foods, nutrition and diabetes prevention, she has authored over 30 books surrounding these topics and also published over 200 papers in scientific research journals. She is also the president of the Glycemic Index Foundation and also sits on the editorial board of the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition. Hi, Prof. Jenny. Thank you so much for joining me on this podcast. How are you? It's my pleasure, Ting. Thank you. Let's start off by talking about GI. So the term GI is increasingly common these days and more consumers are now aware of how the GI level is an indicator of um, whether a food is considered uh, healthy or not. So as one of the pioneers and experts in this area of research, can you explain how does the concept work and also your research journey in this area? Okay. Well, I think people are familiar with the concept of quality of fats and quality of proteins. They, they will be familiar with dividing you know, proteins into plant and animal origin. When we come to carbohydrates, in the past we classified them as complex or simple. We were under the assumption that complex carbohydrates were digested slowly and we thought that simple sugars would be digested quickly. But those assumptions proved to be wrong and they are still very common beliefs um, that simple carbohydrates are digested quickly. When in fact what the glycemic index concept showed was that there was a whole range of um, responses in foods depending on the depending on the food, the matrix of the food and how much protein and fat were there and how the starch had been changed during processing and cooking. All these things altered the rate at which carbohydrates were digested and absorbed. And in order to classify them, we developed a scale from zero to 100. So people are familiar with um, the centigrade scale for temperature from 0 to 100. Well, the glycemic index is similar. Um, we, we assign to, to different foods a number between 0 and 100, which is based on actually testing the food in real people with the real food as consumed, generally commonly consumed. So on this basis, we compare foods gram for gram of carbohydrate. 
So, you know, there are some foods there that are surprisingly high on this GI scale up in the 90s. And there are some foods which we wouldn't expect to be slowly digested and absorbed, but have a low glycemic index. So we can talk more about which foods are high and which are low when you're ready, Ting Min. I'm, I'm definitely interested to hear more about how do you categorize the different foods into different scale. Can you explain more about that? Sure. So we now have a, an international standard for testing the glycemic index of foods. And one of the most important things is that you're comparing the same weight of carbohydrate in each food. Um, generally, it's 50 grams of carbohydrate whether it's from rice or bread or from ice cream, it's the same quantity. And every food um, is compared with a reference food. The reference food is usually glucose, glucose in water in a 50 gram carbohydrate portion. So every single person who tests a food is their own control. They test the reference food um, not just once, but three times, uh, three different occasions. We give them 50 grams of glucose in 200 mils of water. And we do it three times because we know that from day to day, within a same, the same individual, glucose tolerance, as it's called, glucose tolerance will vary a little bit. It, will, it won't be the same every day. It will depend on many things which are, um, you can't control. For example, it will depend on how many hours sleep people had, how much exercise they did the day before, even the food they had uh, for dinner the night before. It means that glucose tolerance varies from day to day. So we, we measure the reference food three times. Then when we come to test the food, we take 10 subjects who've tested the reference food three times, and we test the test food in the same quantity as the reference food, so a 50 gram carbohydrate portion. So for example, if it's bread and half of the bread weight is carbohydrate, about 50%, then we're testing, um, we're testing about um, four slices of bread, about um, four slices of bread, because that will contain 50 grams of carbohydrate. Does that make sense? We take the average of those 10 individuals. Okay. Uh, we, we take the average of the reference food for each person. Each person is their own control and we compare the test food. So, you know, when we when we calculate the average GI, you can see that there is a variation from person to person. And people think, oh, this is a unique characteristic of this person. But actually, it's not a unique characteristic of the person. It's simply what we're seeing is that some of their day-to-day -day variability. So the average of the 10 individuals is, is the published glycemic index of the food. It's um, important to test at least 10 individuals. But once you've done 10, you can expect that if you did another 10 subjects um, in another part of the world, that you will get roughly the same glycemic index of the same food, um, assuming that you can compare 
uh, identical foods in each case. And that might mean shipping the same food around the world to different laboratories. I see. So um, the characteristics, the genetics of the individuals, they don't really play a big part in, in deciding the GI levels. That's right. I mean, we, we do read about some differences between Asian people and people of Northern European origin. Yeah. And yes, um, people of Asian origin, um, they tend to be have higher glucose areas under the curve. So what we mean by that is that when we test the, the glucose response, we actually take eight readings um, at eight different time points and over a two-hour period. And so when we measure the area, it's called the incremental area under the curve, we're getting a, um, a sort of integrated measure of their glucose tolerance. So it, it, we do find that people of Asian origin tend to have higher glucose areas under the curve. And that applies especially um, to starchy foods. And foods like rice and, and bread are starchy foods. And some of our research has shown there is a good reason why there's a higher glucose area under the curve. Asian people have higher copy number of the gene called Amy1. Amy1 produces amylase in saliva. So the food that starts, I'm sorry, the enzyme that starts starch digestion is, is secreted in saliva. It's mixed with the food in our mouth and we swallow it and it kickstarts starch digestion. And what we know now is be, because Asian people have higher copy numbers of this gene, they have more amylase in their saliva and therefore they digest starch faster. It's only a little bit faster and it doesn't matter in the whole scheme of, of GI testing. It's a very small effect and it means that you just could use white bread as your reference food, for example, and you would get the same GI values in both G within both Asian people and people of Northern European origin. I see. Okay. Okay. Then in that case, may I know how did you um, start to go into this area of research in the first place? Um, because we started when I saw um, David Jenkins' first paper on glycemic index. It was published in the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition in 1981, which is 40 years ago now. And mm -hmm. I happened to see a copy of the paper that was actually being sent to someone else, but I came across my desk accidentally. And I found, I found the results quite fascinating because it, it kind of, it's, findings were really the opposite to what people expected. So for example, he tested 50, or that group tested 50 foods and published the first list of 50 foods. And potatoes had a very high glycemic index in the, in the 80s. And something like um, a Mars bar, which is people know is, has got sugar in it, had a lower glycemic response than potatoes. And I thought, mm, this is interesting. Perhaps, perhaps I should have a look at Australian foods and see what we get here. And I happened to have an honest student at the time who was 
looking at the composition of Australian Indigenous foods, um, Australia's unique bush foods. And so we, we were getting large quantities of the food sent to us to test their composition. But I thought I can measure the GI at the same time, or the honours student could do some studies. And so that started us off. And, and the findings were also very important because what we were showing was that native foods, indigenous foods, even when they were, you know, underground starchy items like potatoes, they tended to have a low glycemic index. And I thought to myself, maybe this is what humans were exposed to during human evolution, that the foods that people ate during the Paleolithic had a low glycemic index. And what we have possibly done by breeding newer newer varieties of potatoes and rice and and wheats perhaps what we've done is actually increased their glycemic index by by making their starch more easily digestible perhaps because we we thought big seeds were better or bigger potatoes were better um, bigger granules were better all these things contributed to increasing the degree of what we call starch gelatinization so i'll just explain that term so starches um, in, a, in a raw food, they're present as very hard little crystals of raw starch. Mm -hmm. And you can see them under the microscope. And we can't digest starch in the raw form. We, we need to cook it. We need to have water present so that the starch granule swells. Um, and as it swells, it's called gelatinization. And, you know, if we use enough heat and enough water, we can make the whole granule fall apart, so to speak. It swells to the point where it bursts. And then you have single molecules of starch in solution. And that is called 100% starch gelatinization. And that's the way we commonly eat um, our starch at the moment. It's it's easily digested because it's open, um, it's in solution, it's easy for the enzymes like amylase to attack the starch, long chains of glucose molecules to chop them up um, into individual um, molecules and therefore to be absorbed quickly. So it explains why even when something is a, um, a complex carbohydrate like starch and even if it's you know got fiber present that fiber may not prevent it from quick um, digestion um, in in the digestive small intestine of human beings so i think we have have in this process of breeding and making foods taste better and better um, we have inadvertently, uh, not intentionally, at the same time that we've made them taste better, we happen to have increased their glycemic index or their GI. So by making the starch more easily digestible, is, does it also mean that it's um, better for the gut as well, for the gut to break down the food as well? 
No, it's 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 actually it's actually the opposite. So when, yes, when we digest something very quickly, okay. it hits the bloodstream. It hits the bloodstream very quickly, and it can it can it stretches the capacity of our metabolic systems to bring glucose down again to a level which is which is um, normal what we call glucose homeostasis so for example the bloodstream glucose level when we wake up will be between four and five millimolar when we've eaten a high glycemic index food it can quickly within half an hour it can reach 10 or 12 millimolar so it doubles the glucose level in the in the blood and that level is is high enough it, it what happens in certain tissues such as the eyes in the kidneys um, in the endothelial cells that line the blood vessels that glucose in the blood um, tra is transported by by passive diffusion across the cell membranes into those tissues and so the level in, um, is the same and and the tissues are damaged by the high levels of glucose that are reached those levels can damage proteins they cause glycation they over time those levels of glycation can become so high that the cell um, actually dies so one of the consequences of of having diabetes is that blood glucose levels are too high too often and symptoms and signs of diabetes like um, retinopathy or blindness um, and, and the kidney cells die and that causes kidney damage um, and the endothelial cells um, become dysfunctional um, because of the high glucose levels and that means they're less flexible and you're more likely to suffer from cardiovascular disease. So what it means is that foods that are slowly digested and absorbed, those ones are producing glucose levels in the blood that are within our capacity to metabolize. They don't cause harm, they don't cause direct harm and under the influence of insulin, um, the glucose in muscle cells is oxidized and that oxidation process is the normal processing of glucose. Earlier on, you were saying that when you read the paper, right, it says that the GI of a mass chocolate bar was lower as compared to potatoes. So does it mean that the mass chocolate bar is healthier in a sense? No, so so none of us will say to ourselves, oh, um, you know, that we can choose one aspect of a food and say that's the most important aspect. So, so for example, we would never assume jelly beans are good for us just because they're low fat. Okay. Um, okay. We would never assume that. And you know, the the complexity of saying whether who a food is is healthy or not depends on the rest of the diet. So so it's more important for us to look at, at the quality of um, you know fat, the quality of protein in foods. Um, the GI matters, um, of course, but it's not the only 
only yardstick by which we should judge a food. So of course a Mars bar might have a lower GI than potatoes, but but we know also that the Mars bar will have lots lots of calories. Um, that it will be easy to eat a lot of calories in one mouthful, that it will have saturated fat, and that saturated fat will have effects on cholesterol levels and therefore on cardiovascular disease. So nutrition is complex. Nutrition is, is not a, a, a simple discipline at all, and we're still, we're still learning. Yeah, so after encountering that paper, uh, what were the other research that proceeded from that? And also, how did you go on to tell the others, especially the key uh, policymakers, about this, um, the, the GI concept and its importance? Sure. So, so yes, um, policymakers were were very cautious about GI to the to begin with. The glycemic index was was obviously controversial from the very start, from 1981 onwards. It was controversial because it turned conventional wisdom upside down. One because it turned on its head the idea that starches were all slowly digested and sugars were quickly digested. It turned that idea upside down. Also, it sounded quite complicated. It wasn't as simple as saying, oh, a small molecule is quickly digested and a big molecule is slowly digested. It just wasn't that simple. Um, and we didn't understand to begin with why one food was low GI and one, why one food was high GI. So we've discovered those things over the course of the last 40 years. So I think there is general consensus um, around the world by diabetes organizations that choosing low GI carbohydrates is, is helpful for people with diabetes. It's just one of a number of markers of food quality that a person with diabetes might like to consider. So it's easier, it's easy for everyone to understand that we make exchanges or swaps within the same food category. So if there's a rice, we've got a, a many different rice varieties on the market. Some are high GI and some are low GI. They have exactly the same macronutrient composition. Um, but the, the end state, the physical and chemical state of the starch varies um, depending on the kind of rice. So they will say, you know, swap and use a low GI rice. Um, and there are, you can find more examples of those swaps if you go to a website um, of the, the um, GI Foundation. The GI Foundation um, is um, gisymbol.com and it has um, an easy tool and lots of recipes to help the average person choose low GI. I see, I see. So eventually, how did the uh, policymakers, how were they convinced uh, by the concept? that GI is indeed something that is um, relevant and could be applicable uh, for, for the food industry? Um, I think they were persuaded by 
the number of clinical trials, randomized controlled trials in people with diabetes that compared compared a low GI diet with a conventional diabetes diet um, that also compared them with low carbohydrate diets and with higher um, Mediterranean style diets. When you look at the meta-analyses of all these studies in people with diabetes or pre-diabetes, you see clearly that there are improvements in average glucose levels. Um, um, a metric called glycated hemoglobin um, is lower which reflects the average level of glycation of, of hemoglobin in red cells. That is lower, and by being lower, it means that the risk of complications is also lower. The preview study, which was published last year, it, it compared um, a conventional healthy diet with a lower glycemic index, higher protein diet. So it had that combination of low GI and high protein as the, as the intervention. And it went for three years and it looked at weight loss and weight regain over that long period of time. It looked at various markers of diabetes and average glucose levels. And, and what we found in the paper that was published this year in, in diabetes care was that people regained less weight over that time um, if they were if they were consuming the low if they were in the lowest tertile of GI or glycemic load if their diet was. So I think it's very common for people to lose weight and then regain weight. And what the preview study showed was that you regain less weight you're more likely to maintain your weight loss if you're eating a low GI, low glycemic load diet. So it's helpful to have a bit more protein and lower GI carbs at the same time. And, you know, in the end, it's weight that determines whether we develop um, high blood pressure, whether we develop cardiovascular disease and develop diabetes is often precipitated by having too much weight um, around the waist. So if we can lose weight, and one of the best ways to lose weight is to use the new meal replacements um, in the form of milkshakes that help you to lose weight quickly. And then the process of maintaining that, that weight loss begins. And maintaining a lower GI diet over that time is, is clearly helpful. And I hope that it means that policymakers throughout the world will recognise that it's, it's not just for people with diabetes, it's people, people with overweight and obesity as well who will be, have benefits of eating a low GI diet. On the industry players, right, what do you think are some of the main challenges hindering the development of low GI food offerings? Is cost also a potential issue? Yes, I, I think you have hit the nail on the head. Yes, definitely costs because it's a biological test because it's it's it means that you're 
you're taking blood samples in human human beings. It's not the same as measuring just you know, the fat in food or the protein in food. What you're actually doing is taking 10 human subjects and you're testing them, them with the reference food three times. You're testing your food of interest in 10 individuals. You know, that takes time and effort. So testing the GI is expensive. Um, but, you know, it's no more expensive than having a one-page advertisement in a magazine. It's no more expensive than um, what it is to to market foods by TV or, or in on radio or in the press. So it's, it's really a marketing tool that I think presses the right buttons in consumers. I think most consumers have a feel of what it means to have high or low blood glucose. They talk about sugar rushes and they talk about sugar lows. And I think consumers understand that it's best to have an even, um, as, you know, as few fluctuations in blood glucose as possible, if we can. And so I think low GI is a marketing tool. I think it's a, we can use it as um, as a shortcut to what a healthy diet is. We can say choose these low GI breads, breakfast cereals, rices, um, whatever they are. Choose these varieties, and you will have um, a diet that helps you maintain weight loss and prevents diabetes and cardiovascular disease. So it's a big, it's a big claim, and it's a big claim. But I think it's 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 just as important as claims about protein and fat. Yeah, at this point, right? Maybe we can uh, let our audience know what is the desired GI. What is considered a low GI level? Okay, so if we're just looking at single foods. The International Standards Organization says that on a scale of zero to 100, where glucose sugar is 100, then a GI of 55 or less is a low GI food. Okay, 55 or less. Um, on that same scale, if the food has a GI of 70 or more, it's considered a high GI food. So like any cut point, it's 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 fairly arbitrary. You know, it's the same whether we're looking at high protein or high fat or low fat. Um, we have to choose a cut point somewhere. And these values for GI have worked. They've helped researchers design low GI diets. And when we look at the long-term observational studies, the cohort studies like the nurses' health study, um, they show us that average GI um, foods, the whole, the whole diet that has, has a low GI of around 45, um, when the whole diet has around 45, you've got your lowest um, risk of developing diabetes and cardiovascular disease. So those observational cohort studies have also been published as meta-analyses. And they tell us that 
you know, low, low GI diets work in practice. Yeah, okay. So like 55 is like the magic number for manufacturers, for product developers to, to look at if they want to market their product as a healthy and low GI offering. So in, in terms of new product development, um, in which areas, um, it beverages or bread or rice, do you see the most potential for developing uh, low GI products? Okay, so there's some there's some little um, clues that help. So if the food is high in soluble fiber, um, viscous soluble fiber such as oats and psyllium and chia seeds, um, in some of the sort of old world grains like amaranth, um, those old varieties of grains tend to have a low GI. Um, and there may be, maybe one of the reasons is because they contain more soluble viscous fibre. And if we use those viscous fibres as ingredients when we make bread, for example, um, or we make um, a breakfast cereal, if we use those viscous soluble fibres, we're also increasing the chances that the whole product will be low GI. Okay, so it's very useful. You also, if you are, um, if you are processing um, rices, if you are breeding rices, sorry, breeding rices, um, then high amylose varieties, high amylose varieties tend to have a lower GI. It's it's not foolproof. Um, it's just one aspect of it. Um, but uh, rices that um, also have I don't know whether you, you have them in your country, but in places like Australia, there are foil packs of pre-cooked starch, um, pre-cooked rices that just need 30 or 90 seconds in the microwave oven. Those varieties must be, must be varieties of rice which don't stick together like cement, so the grains stay separate. And that is a quality that tends to also mark the product as low GI. So the, the qualities that um, prevent stickiness of rice are also the qualities that keep it low GI. Um, so, so manufacturers can, can use these clues to help them develop products with a low GI. Um, so when it comes to breakfast cereals, um, we know that oats themselves have a lower GI, particularly the varieties that take longer to cook. Um, so, so if you think about the starch granule and you think about how heat and water must gelatinize the starch, the more heat and water you use during process, during processing, the more likely you'll have a high GI product at the end. Um, so we we can help food the food industry to develop low GI products on this basis. Um, perhaps you know instead of producing um, extrusion products, so extruded products that are breakfast cereals that are are um, put through. Um, high-tech high extruders and they're puffed at the end, um, they, 
their high pressure cooking styles with puffing at the end, that is usually um, an indicator that it will be a high GI product. So those, those products like cheesels um, and um, puffed rice, they, they have a high glycemic index because of this processing method. Um, the same applies in biscuit when we're making biscuits and cookies. Um, there are biscuits and cookies with a high GI and others with a low GI. And it's the technology um, that is determining that, that characteristic. But, you know, there's, there is, I don't know all the secrets. I, I know that, you know, Bergen, there is a, um, a company that makes breads in Australia which have a low glycemic index. Um, there's about 10 products in the range. Um, they're all low GI. They've all got different ingredients. And I don't know the reason. I don't know the reason why they're low GI. Uh, I suspect they have, um, you know, they have techniques during manufacture that are uh, company secrets. And they will stay secrets um, mm. for a long time. So, so I think you know, food companies need to do their own research, and they can they can in, use in vitro um, degrees of gelatinization. So the food industry has has equipment that measures the degree of gelatinization of starch. And that can be helpful if when they're developing new products. I see. Okay, so it's like a combination of the types of technology used and also the types of varieties, food varieties that you use. That's how you can control the GI level. And on the other hand, I also have an, another question, which is about... Um, you know, because uh, low GI food, they have a different structure. Um, does it mean that they might not be as uh, nice tasting when it comes to the taste and also the, the texture? Is it always the case or it's not that case? I, I, don't, I don't agree with you on that. I, I think low GI can taste better, frankly. I, I, love, um, I love the Bergen breads and the way they taste. I, um, I love traditional cooked porridges with a coarser texture. Um, I love pasta, which has a low GI. Um, in, in nearly all cases, pasta, no matter what shape they are, they have a low GI. And, and clearly, you know, pasta is one of the favourite products of many people. Um, yeah. I, I don't, I, I'm for one, I'm, I'm not, really interested in eating puffed rice cakes um, or, or pizzles. Uh, I, I like foods that are chewy and um, I, I like them when I know that they're, they're healthy for me as well. So, yes. but I do understand and I, I can see that, you know, jasmine rice might be the favourite in some countries because it's sticky, um, whereas in another country in like India basmati rice will be the favourite because it's not sticky. So there are cultural differences. Um, but, you know, I, th I think the food industry has this ability to um, 
develop products that consumers want, they can, they can, they have the tools, they have the know-how, they have the research capability of developing very taste, tasty, palatable foods of various compositions of, of various GI values. So I have a lot of faith in the food industry. <laughs> Okay, and in that case, right, may I know what are some of your ongoing research um, surrounding the GI concept? My own research is um, includes the you know big clinical trials such as the preview study, and we're currently doing another study in um, parents that are planning to have a new baby in the future. Um, we're we're looking at um, you know how we can in increase the chances of having a healthy baby with less risk of, of um, you know, developing into an overweight child. Um, so preventing, preventing child obesity is one of my key concerns and I think it's, it's important to intervene, to make interventions before conception. So I think the education of, of um, future parents of teenagers and young adults about what's a healthy lifestyle overall, about, you know, healthy diets and healthy um, physical activity and sleep, sleep hygiene. These things are all important when it comes to creating you know, a new human life. Um, so so my, my research is also, you know, we... We, we like to look at the mechanism behind different things. So when we find, for example, recently there are papers that show that when you, when you use um, blended fruit, fruit juices, when you put the whole fruit into a yeah. blender yeah. Um, and you mix it and then the consumer consumes the whole blended product, There's, it's not the same as fruit juice. There's nothing separated. Um, what we're finding is that those products have a lower GI than products than the whole fruit. So, so that's a surprise to most people. Yes, and, <laughs> and I, I think it it tells us something about you know the assumptions in food science. It, um, is the assumption is that fruit juice is not healthy, but I think you can. You can the food industry can develop new products such as blended fruits, which have a lower GI than whole fruit, and that might be good for you. I see. Well, this is um out of my expectation, <laughs> because I do have friends who told me that uh, you know if I were to drink uh, fruit juice, blended fruit juice, it, it's actually not good for my health. <laughs> they say it will, it, it will lead to uh weight gain instead so well mm -hmm. this is indeed like uh, something that's unexpected yeah yeah it is un it's unexpected and even today you know there are products that surprise me that you know that surprise me when how low gi they are so so for example the meal replacement products that are very um, popular at the moment. They, they're used for weight loss because there's only 200 calories and they provide all the vitamin and minerals um, that are needed. Um, they, they tend to use sugars as their form of carbohydrate 
um, but but they still have a low GI. So they're they're fifty percent protein by weight. They're fifty percent carbohydrate by weight, or nearly nearly that one. Um, so and they they have still have a GI of around forty or even thirty. So we don't understand why. Maybe it's got something to do with the protein content and the amino acids, particular amino acids that are there that stimulate insulin. But they are surprisingly low GI products, and I think they can be very helpful for weight control. Oh, so even in this case, um, even though that product contains high sugar and high carbohydrates, um, it can still help to um, control the weight because it has a low GI. Is that the case? Well, it's one of the reasons I think it helps to control weight. It's very satiating, um, even though it, they tend to contain only 200 calories. Um, they, they make you feel full. And um, it's not just low GI. I think it's probably the protein content as well. And um, something to do with the viscosity because they have fiber in them as well. So, so all told, they they are very helpful for weight control. And what do you think are some of the future directions for GI-related research? Mm, what do you hope to see, or what do you hope to do further in in, in this? Um, I hope, yeah, yeah. I I hope that what we'll see is more food industry focus to help us to help the ordinary consumer find low GI products in the supermarket so we need um, a little flag in the supermarket if you like that says these are healthy low GI products um, so we of course that means the food industry has more development research and development around the glycemic index of foods that they they focus their focus is on the glycemic index and that they don't ignore all the other aspects of a food that make it healthy as well so we're not asking people to consume high fat high sugar foods we want we want the ordinary consumer to find low gi rices breads breakfast cereals potatoes um, um, biscuits, and all those um, those different product categories need more low GI versions, healthy low GI versions that the consumer can find easily in the supermarket. Yeah, indeed. I think this is something that I will want to buy as well as a consumer. <laughs> if it tastes good <laughs> and it's uh, cost effective and, that, and most importantly good for my health. Yes. Thank you so much. Yes, thank you. thank you very much, Team Min. It was lovely to talk with you. If you like this podcast, you can subscribe to Neutra Champion on Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Apple Podcasts. You can also head to NutraIngredients-Asia.com for more content and news on the nutrition industry.